Welcome, everybody. Um, we would like to start this um, conversation with a moment of silence and reflection, uh, remembering folks who we have lost to two different pandemics, the HIV AIDS pandemic and the recent COVID-19 pandemic, and the recent mass shootings targeting our children, elders, and queer folks, both in Pulse and Buffalo, and recently in Iwalde. Thank you. Muy buenas tardes. Good evening, everyone. Um, and thank you for joining us today in this extremely important plática, conversación. Uh, welcome to the Champions, an interview series of Stanford Pride. Today's interview is co-sponsored by the Stanford Latino Alumni Association. The Champions was created to provide a platform for our LGBT alumni who are championing diversity and inclusion and venturing into equity. My name is Chabeli. When I get upset, it's Chabela uh, or political Chabela. And I am in the class of 95 and, or 99, depending on who you ask. Uh, we are so honored and grateful to have some beautiful, amazing guests today. Brenda Chavez is an attorney from Los Angeles, class of 99, and Ernesto Martinez is a professor at the University of Oregon, class of 98. We will have time for audience questions at the end, so please write those down, or you can use the chat feature to submit your questions. So without further ado, Let's get started. I wanna allow a little bit of time for both Brenda and Ernesto to just briefly introduce yourself. Who is you? Hi, Brenda. Well, first I wanna say thank you. Thank you so much for having me as a guest today. It's really my honor to be here and to see such beautiful faces and uh, people that I remember very fondly that I first met when I was probably 18 years old, many moons ago. Um, so my name is Brenda Chavez. I am a first generation Chicana, born uh, in Boyle Heights, raised in Pico Union, Los Angeles. I am one of, or I'm sorry, I lost my brother speaking. Thank you so much for that moment of silence. My brother is somebody that um, I lost in the last year. And so thank you for that. So. I have two older siblings, uh, but I was the first in my family to go to college. And I am now an attorney. Thank you so much, Brenda, and welcome. Bienvenida. Gracias. Um, Ernesto, hola. Hola. I'm so happy to be here with both of you um, and Gus as well. And um, for those people who will be joining us, I am, um, I'm a Chicano Puerto Rican from East Oakland, California. I grew up moving back and forth between the Bay Area and um, Jalisco, Mexico. And uh, let's see, I am also a first-gen first gen college student and um, uh, I I, I'm a teacher at the University of Oregon. And I owe a lot uh, to my time at Stanford. Super formative, um, you two in particular, uh, very important to me. 
and so yeah, I'm uh, I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. Welcome, welcome, Ernesto. So let's you know let's get started with some formal questions. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned uh, Ernesto, you mentioned a little about formative experiences at Stanford. So share with the audience because I don't know if all the audience uh, is aware uh, that I think all three of us were pretty out, you know, at Stanford. And what was it being out on campus during the 90s, during your undergrad years, those extremely formative years? Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, maybe I'll start. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to, you know, as I think about this, what's really, I, I want to say first and foremost, what's really special for me about Stanford, and it has everything to do with how I was growing up in Oakland was that um, I often found that I, in order to be in the um, gifted and talented kind of classes, <laughs> that was the framework then, um, uh, you were often farther away from community. Um, and it's a quite painful kind of experience to have as you're being celebrated and given opportunities, but then farther and farther away from the people you kick it with at lunchtime. <laughs> Entonces, um, going to Stanford for me was like super, super, um, I was very impressionable at the time because, you know, I, it was saturated in literature. It was saturated with people of color. Ahí estaba el Renato Rosaldo, estaba Paula Moya, Ramón Saldívar, you know, um, Mary Louise Pratt, Laura Romero, who unfortunately committed suicide during our time there. Este, in any case, I want to mention how um, how important the, the, the Chicanx Latinx community was for me, um, because I finally saw modeled for me a kind of, um, I don't know, it was like, it was, uh, you know, the Chicano community was like large and expansive, <laughs> and it felt like everything was possible. I mean, y no te lo miento, because that's how I felt it, you know? I mean, there were challenges, and I'll speak to the challenges, but I think for me, it was like, you walk on campus and then someone points to Elvira Prieto and says, she's one of the leaders who just um, uh, did the hunger strike for ethnic studies. Um, and then she was student body president. I see, you know, and you're like, oh, like, you know, um, we are, we're doing amazing things already, you know? <laughs> este, and then I want to say, I think about being out is that we created spaces within Casa Zapata um, that were often outside of like the what was like traditionally the queer spaces, like the fire, fire truck house. And, and it felt good and it felt authentic. Um, and we had our battles, but it felt um, like home, um, messy home, but home. <laughs> oh, sorry, so I, I'll stop there. I, I wanted just to lead by the fact that my Stanford at that time was uh, for me a like a very uh, grounding in Latinx community and culture that was, for me, a useful place to be out. Wow, yes. Well, thank you for sharing that, Ernesto. Um, I, I definitely second a lot of what you said. Um, it was an amazing time. So for me, I actually want to share what prompted me to be out and why, you know, in part, I have the experience that I had. So for me, my journey begins before I uh, went to college. When I was in high school, as a, as senior, my senior year, I um I came out to my mom, and um, 
my mom is a, uh, thankfully she's still with me and she's a, a Catholic, you know, I grew up more or less, you know, she's Mexican and um, I grew up, I'm gonna say in a more or less traditional um, home where there was homophobia. Um, my father was very homophobic, uh, but he passed away when I was 14. And, um, and then I had my mom and I, I chose to come out to her and um, because I just couldn't, you know, I, 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 my experience is, um, is that I, I came out to myself. I didn't realize that I wasn't straight until I was a little older, around 15, 16. And then um, if, a couple of years after that, I, every time I interacted with my mom, I, I um, feared that she would reject me or I thought, do you really love me if you knew this part of me? So it came out <laughs> and it came out and I came out to her. And unfortunately, it was not a positive experience. My mom had a really hard time. She um, said many things that were very uh, hurtful. And um, there is a happy ending, which is part of, I mean, the journey continues, right? And, and that's part of what I'll talk about is the, is the fact that, um, you know, part of my healing journey generally has also involved forgiveness. And by the time I was a senior at Stanford, my mom actually was part of a panel of parents uh, who spoke at a queer uh, Latina, Latino youth conference. So shared her journey. And even to this day, if my mom is next to me, you know, I openly speak about her, my coming out to her and that experience and she'll apologize. She recognizes it. And she uh, openly talks to other parents about it as well to help them in their journey. So by the time, but one of the things that my mom had said to me is she, basically wanted me to be closeted. She said, Te van a rechazar, meaning they're going to reject you. This is not part of our community. Uh, she said things like that. So I came in fearing that, fearing that I would uh, feel be rejected. However, I made a choice, you know, and I came out in my uh, application for, uh, for to find a roommate at my dorm. And I was at Casa Zapata. As, um, and I basically made a choice, not knowing that I was stepping into this amazing history and a group of other people, such as Ernesto, Chavela, Gus, other people that were also in a similar journey. And we, you know, familia was already there when I when I was a freshman, and there was a, a contingent of us, a, a good number, good number of us that uh, were already out. So, um, but you know, there. I think uh, similar to what it's like in the outside world, outside of Stanford, where I am often the only or one of a few, you know, um, I felt like that. Um, thankfully, I had familia, so I had uh, support, but outside of those circles, I know that I did feel or fear homophobia, either in the Chicano community or um, not understanding cultural issues, I'm gonna put it that way, in the uh, Stanford uh, queer community generally. Uh, but I did choose to be open about who I am. And I'm, and I'm just um, so happy that I had a community to do that with. So um, just to let you know, you all were very instrumental in being able to continue building spaces and building community. You know, um, I 
stepped away from Stanford for a couple of years to do HIV work uh, because that's, you know, what life presented and what, you know, what I, um, uh, what was needed out in community. Um, and to be able to come back to such a vibrant uh, out community was, gosh, was heaven sent. You know, it was like, okay, we want us, let's do this. Let's do this some more. And um, so thank you both as well, you know, for for embracing the loqueras, you know, this loca that, you know, wanted to to do this and to do, to, to do that. But, you know, in, in that same framework uh, or that same line of thought, you know, a lot of talk after the, the murder of George uh, Floyd, uh, a lot of organizations um, went into this um, very deliberate um, journey, you might say, to um, talk about finally <laughs> uh, the, around diversity and inclusion. So what are your thoughts on those subjects um, and in your respective professions? What, what comes to mind around, around diversity and inclusion? Like I was sharing earlier, I, I'm, I work for myself now. So in the profession, I do have to say, when I started working as an attorney, I was at a big firm in New York and it's an international firm. And I think in the New York office at the time, I don't remember, but there were at least 200 lawyers. And I think I was one of two, one of two Latinas. I had no idea, you know, I, my journey as an attorney, that's a whole uh, story in and of itself. I had no idea what it meant to be a lawyer. I had never met a lawyer before. I, even law school didn't prepare me for, for that, you know, being uh, at a firm. And it was very lonely, I have to tell you. It was, it was lonely. Um, and eventually, you know, that's part of a longer story. But I've, uh, when I became a mom, I decided to have, start my own practice. And so I'm going on 11 years of having uh, my own uh, law practice. So I'm a solo practitioner now in Los Angeles, and I am still licensed in New York. So diversity. So there's a need. There's definitely a need for people to be uh, out. There's a need for Latinas in the, the legal profession. I, despite whatever I've encountered challenges, I'm going to say I've encountered, I never discourage a student, anybody that shows an interest in being a lawyer, just because there's, there's always an interest. And I've actually you know, um, I continue to be out. I made that choice, you know, many years ago. And, um, and I've had people call me based on what they've read on my website or based on a lot of the clients that I currently have are referrals. So I, I love that even though I'm not doing civil rights, which was the first um, thing that attracted me to want to be a lawyer, you know, I'm definitely an advocate and I'm definitely an advocate for people um, who, who need that voice. Yeah, no, I, I mean, and I, and I also know you edited a book or you participated in a collection. Like you're also a writer and an artist. And so I think um, it's important to kind of, I mean, you know, it's a, this is a short time to be interviewed, right? But I think there is a, there's a way in which um, we, sh we show up or I've seen Brenda show up or I've seen Chabela show up 
in ways that are really expansive and that um, that meet the needs of our community. And that means a lot of different things that sometimes doesn't get captured in terms of our profession. But I echo the thing of the question of isolation and the, the theme of isolation. And, you know, I had an opportunity to edit a volume of essays uh, called The Truly Diverse Faculty. I quoted it with a social psychologist, a very important Native American social psychologist, a friend of mine, Stephanie Freiberg. And um, in that collection, we put a lot of thinking. Um, uh, we brought junior faculty of color and presidents and deans and chairs of universities to talk to each other about the particular kinds of pressures that are placed on junior faculty of color in particular. And um, so a few things that come up for me <laughs> that's really important is that, um, you know, universities are, are, are not unique, but it's a very interesting place to be when a university or an institution through discourse um, over idealizes their commitment to diversity, you know, often uh, aspirationally, right? Pero se la creen, you know, they believe it. <laughs> and then in practice, they are straight up undermining, right? Because they haven't changed practices, the people at the top levels, right? And so that we, so we wanted to speak to that particular nexus where, where an institution already says they claim diversity, but they undermine it in practice. That's very common, no? And so to, to inhabit that space, it's super tricky. You know, because uh, one of the things we tried to theorize there was that sometimes even white liberals um, will feel very triggered, not triggered, that's too heavy word. Um, uh, they will be very hurt if their good intentions, right, are not met with applause. Mm -hmm. and, um, and they will often act in racist ways <laughs> to undermine you in order to keep their credibility as progressive, uh, as not harmful. And so um, I think there's another kind of thing that happens uh, in these kind of places. Uh, Tiffany willoughby Harard, a associate professor of African-American studies at Irvine, she contributed an essay called, um, where she theorized uh, how junior faculty of color are put in the position to be mammies. Um, so she calls it intimate, non-hostile caretaking around issues of race. So we're supposed to be kind <laughs> and take care of the progeny of, of this legacy of racism, right? Um, often at the expense of taking uh, care of our own communities. So it's kind of mammified work, right? And, um, right? and so they need to see us as benign, right? And gentle. And that also puts a huge pressure on, right? Because the moment at which you start to critique or also the one where you even start to have feelings, right? And express those feelings is the they'll uh, there are ways in which they you can be undermined right um so i guess i echo uh, brenda that it is a difficult journey to be in places um where you're not where you're not many and yet you're still uh you're still interested not just in moving professionally <laughs> but in transforming the institution and for faculty, I'll speak specifically to that, it's like the university doesn't care how much time you spend on service, right? They just care how much you publish, especially research universities. And mm -hmm. says there's another problem there, right? Where we, you know, we meet the needs of our communities at our expense. Uh, well, our expense professionally, but not definitely not through the soul, right? In our, you know, connections. Um, uh, I don't think I want to live in a university that that doesn't allow me uh, the opportunity to kind of improve my relationship to my community, um, but it costs me, yeah.
you know, by default, I think, because we are at a certain, reaching certain age, you know, we uh, continue to be those trendsetters, you know, and continue to brave those ways for, for folks uh, who are coming, you know, behind us, you know, um, you know, I think of the generation ahead of my generation and most are gone. You know, not all, you know, um, and, and or were not out, you know, um, and did not have that space or that opportunity. You know, I wanted to uh, bring into uh, the room Arturo Islas, Professor Arturo Islas, you know, who died of AIDS. Um, you know, very few people know that, know um, his journey, you know, as a Stanford professor in, you know, the, the Chicano Latino community. Um, and, you know, having passed away from uh, HIV and AIDS and it being not known and, you know, pretty silent, you know, out there and, you know, and what that, that legacy, you know, um, and what that memory, you know, uh, allows us to build upon mm -hmm. you know, as we move forward. I'm going to keep on going on my questions because she has, she is very nosy. But wait, wait, can I ask, can I add something there? Yes. About Arturo Islas. Um, you know, he had paper, he had papers donated, his personal papers donated to the university. And then there was a while I was there, there was a block on them. Um uh in terms of like you can open them into a certain time. Um and then I think Fred Frederick Aldama was able to once they were open, he did a he did he published a book kind of um narrating the things that we could find in those um those documents. But it really struck me too, like. I also come from that generation of thinking about like um, we 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 didn't get the opportunity to spend a lot of time with with uh, gay Latinx elders, and I th keep on thinking about the irony of looking through someone's papers, you know. And I was like, oh, I don't. On the one hand, yes, I want to historicize the work that we do, but I also want to be super present, and um, and I always mourn the fact that for some people. Uh, they did work and there wasn't anything to register it, nothing left behind, you know? Mm. And I think that that ephemeral part of it, I think when, when we take a moment of silence at the beginning, I really do um, mourn um, the fact that, you know, este, so, much, so much possibility, you know? <laughs> I mourn that and I, I carry it in the way that I think about my relations to you all um, and the work that we do, right? Um, it's almost like a gift, but also a responsibility. So, because we want to make sure that we get to all the questions, but I want to know what you are up to now. Who is Brenda Chavez now? What it, you know, how does she spend her typical day? Because, you know, I, we get a lot of uh, young alums saying, what's next? This was this thing, you know, uh, the, the Stanford experience, you know? How's life treating you, Brenda? Uh, well, <laughs> Chavela, well, thank you so much for asking that. Um, I continue to do and be involved in various projects and things. I don't think uh, that will ever change, probably. Uh, so I think first and foremost, you know, I obviously have to make a living. So a good chunk of my time is um, involves practicing and being an attorney, um, but I, because I made that choice and took the risk of going on my own, 
I get to do it, um, in my case, from the comfort of my home. And I get to be present for my family and uh, my son, who, um, who is now 11 years old. So for the, the whole 11 years of his life and the first, especially the first couple, you know, I, um, I was, I'm always been involved. You know, I volunteer at his school. I, when I can, now because of COVID, I wasn't able to this last couple of years, but um, so I'm very involved in that. And, you know, and um, you know, I have a boyfriend, so I am bisexual, by the way. So earlier when I was talking about coming out, I realized recently I had my high school reunion and somebody reminded me that he said, oh, you were the first lesbian I met. And I said, oh my goodness, <laughs> that's right. When I first came out, I had fallen in love with the, um, with a girl and I thought I was lesbian. Um, I remember in, for the first couple of years, I thought I needed to know and I wasn't sure. And then when I fell in love, I thought, oh, well, this is it. This, this must be who I am. And then when I actually, I think for the very first couple of months, I came out as lesbian. And then at some point I realized, oh, my, I'm not. <laughs> and I had a second uh, coming out to myself. And then, and then after that, I said, no matter who I'm with, you know, I will always identify as bisexual. If I'm with a man, it doesn't make me straight. And if I'm with a woman, it does not make me a lesbian. And certainly since I made that decision, including back at Stanford to come out as bi, I, um, I have encountered biphobia. There's so many countless unfortunate stories of biphobia that I have encountered. Um, when, so I'm very out and proud in terms of telling people and coming out as bisexual. And, um, you know, people, if I'm not with a partner, they may make assumptions. So I always have a need or, you know, to, um, to correct somebody or if they make assumptions. So that's definitely continues to be a part of who I am and the way I interact with the world. And as we all know, coming out is not a one-time thing. You know, it, there's coming out to yourself, there's coming out to family members, there's coming out. It, in fact, it continues to this day. I still have to come out to people and I still have to deal with things and reactions and homophobia, biphobia, not understanding, you know, and, and people that matter and that are important. And, um, and I still have to have those conversations. So it's, it's a never ending thing, but back to what I'm doing. So thank you Ernesto, for sharing about the book. I was involved in a project a couple of years ago and we translated it into uh, Spanish. So there's an English and Spanish version out on Amazon and it is called uh, Yo Tambien Stories of Healing and Hope. And in my case, unfortunately, you know, I'm an incest survivor and a rape survivor. So um, there are 10 authors it's a self-published anthology and we all shared our healing journeys. Um, and I mentioned earlier about forgiveness and, and um, so certainly part of my healing journey has involved forgiveness. And so uh, the other hat that I wear is that I'm, I have a four unit property in LA, so I'm a homeowner and a landlord. And uh, let me see, I started a, a nonprofit, which I'm, I, a number of years ago, which I'm called Casa Coyo, and it's a cultural arts organization. And there will be, um, so that's in the works in terms of what it will look like going forward. But in the past, one of the projects that I, events that I did under Casa Coyo was Queering Mictlan. It was a 
Day of the Dead um, queer Latino, Latina celebration. So I continue to be an activist, I guess, and be involved. And, um, and, and that means when I say being an activist, I mean what you do and how you choose to live your life. And in my case, I think even just, like I said, coming out to La Señora, La Vecina, you know, mentioning it casually, whatever, you know, it just, all of that makes a difference. And so that's what I mean by being an activist. And you're taking risks because when you do that, there is a risk, a risk of rejection. I, I've experienced a, um, a risk of being talked badly to. That's happened to me in queer communities. I, I had a very traumatic thing happen a number of years ago at a, an indigenous ceremony. The woman who had this very negative reaction to me was um, lesbian and she had a reaction to finding out that I was bi and told me just very, she's I think been the second person that has verbalized very nasty things uh, mm -hmm. to me, you know, other than when my, my mom, you know, was the first. Um, so it just, you know, this is part of my journey. This is who I am. And now that I'm older and um, I, I definitely acknowledge also my healing journey in terms of my, uh, the traumas that I experienced Thank you. Thank you so much, Brenda, for sharing, sharing so much. Um, yes, and it's been beautiful to see from a distance that journey. Ernesto. Sí, sí. Um, I, I think I'll totally pick up on the healing part of this. And I think maybe this is nice to do this in a Stanford space. I, I guess I, uh, you know, there's, there's like, um, there's a story I can tell about uh, sh uh, shifting my professional career. Um, from doing academic work to doing more uh, creative work centering queer youth. Um, but I think what I wanna say, given the opportunity that Brenda just opened up is that uh, in fact, that wasn't simply a professional journey to do children's books, to do short films, to work in children's media, um, that it was a healing journey for me, um, that I really needed to first and foremost, find a way to make peace with my father. Um, and um, and so uh, and I love I love to just share the opportunity to think that our personal healing doesn't have to stay personal. Um, and so uh, I've been mentored by some amazing uh, Chicana feminists, Chicana lesbian feminists, who have helped me understand that children's books, in particular, are an opportunity for, especially when written by queer people, are an opportunity for us to revisit our childhoods. And um, and we have an opportunity to heal, to touch down on what, what has happened to us, and also to then um, now tell a story from that very informed perspective, not reharming kids, um, but not dumbing down the world, también, you know? And so I think um, what some people might have seen as a pause in my career uh, was for me uh, a 100% unexpected pause where I turned to creativity as a practitioner to find my voice, uh, to kind of really think ancestral healing. And then I produced some bodies of work that then I could leave behind. And I think that's what I see in Brenda um, in having, right? You, you could have processed all that, the, the people you collaborated with could have processed all that on their own, uh, but now you're leaving something behind. And um, it's courageous. Um, and it's so like not pre-professional. Stanford folks are often talking about all oh, their accolades. You know? And I love it. I love it. It's like, yeah, like do the work that we need to do, you know, um, and, and leave something behind. I think that's really, really important. I would love to hear more about that journey of your, with your dad. But what I want to say in terms of uh, 
thank you for the, you know speaking about the legacy but i but i think when we when we talk about these things and the healing journey whatever it is we need to heal from i think that's where we plant seeds because i know for sure others have planted seeds for me mm-hmm. i remember while i was at stanford you know uh watching tv and watching oprah and she mentioned that she had been sexually abused as a child for me that was still the beginning part of my more conscious healing journey um and i just started crying i just remember just bawling and crying um because i heard somebody you know on tv saying it saying it and and so i feel and i thought about it you know when we were going to do this interview if i would say it and at this point of course you know but i think of my son and it's not him you know i mean this is who i am you know i had to come out to my son by the way speaking of coming out mm-hmm. because i was single for many years i was a single mom when i had him and i was single for the first uh six years of his life and up until um i now have my buddy had david and at some point when he was a little older maybe around four I was like, oh, I think I think I, I need to come out to my son. I mean, how is he going to know unless I tell him? Mm-hmm. So there was that. There was I had to come out to my son. And um, when we face, confront, heal, go on these difficult journeys, definitely in my family, all of these issues come down generations, mm-hmm. generations. And, and it's unfortunate. And all of us are a product of those who survived and what did they survive, right? In our case, conquistas, mm-hmm. uh, rapes, generally genocide, enslavement, um, but we survived. But there's still part of that is still part of our journey. So when we choose to speak out, when we choose to live um, openly, whatever that journey is, like I shared with you that initially I came out as lesbian, then I realized, Oh wait, I'm you know I'm I'm never gonna do that. I'm never I'm going to own what I am. But it was part of my story. I mean, I didn't know. I I knew it when I knew it, which is <laughs> when I realized that I was bi. And then I said, okay, this is who I am, and this is how I'll identify forever. Um, and I think that makes a difference. It makes a difference to others around us, from our loved ones to ourselves. Mm-hmm. anyhow so gracias to all of you you know because all of you have been an inspiration to me and i love the work that you're doing Ernesto. the other work um you know yeah. with the children's book and um, and i know recently you had another accomplishment so i would love for you to speak to us about those <laughs> i'm sorry Trevor, later. Yavin, you know, I uh, I had mentioned to both guests that this was going to be probably, a, uh, there was going to be, be a part two, because we have amazing folks on this, you know, on this interview panel, and, um, but let me not take any more time, Ernesto, tell us about HBO. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, let me tell you, um, este, I, I was a, fortunate enough as a scholar to be to um, have brought out Adelina Anthony, a Chicana um, lesbian two-spirit um, teatrista, director, filmmaker, to, um, to Eugene to, to give talks. And she, so let me just say, okay, so this is a person whose work I admire greatly. Um, 
who's, uh, but, but who at, at a given moment, we decided to share work. Um, and uh, I can't tell you enough um, uh, how important she was in being able to see a script and to understand that this wasn't just a show, that this was part of Ernesto's healing journey and that it had an opportunity to leave things behind. So this, this is my effort to kind of uh, leave HBO toward the end, <laughs> but, but not because it's bad, but because we had never an intention of, we, the project was something different than the ending up on HBO. Um, and um, uh, I think it reminds me of when I, you know, I'll say it humbly, if I ever have had the opportunity to be like an Adelina figure to other people, I want to do that over and over again. <laughs> it's that moment where, you know, I could keep, she could have kept on doing her own work, you know, but here we cross paths and she was present enough to be like, yo creo que hay una oportunidad aquí, <laughs> right? And it was just enough of what I needed because I wasn't a specialist in film, you know, um, that she could collaborate with me. Entonces, um, I want to say that only to say that, um, I love, uh, there, is, there is, Stanford and the schools that we attend prepare us to be professionals in a certain kind of a way. I have really enjoyed the moment where I no longer feel like a professional and I'm just a student and I'm learning and I'm asking questions. And that's been that creative part for me to really, um, to be able to make mistakes. You know, as a professional, you're always like being asked to be an expert, you know? And, oh, what a gift to be a student again, you know, <laughs> um, and to have to walk into spaces and be like, and why is that? And why do we do it that way? <laughs> um, and I think um, so. I, so the, the short film that we did, La Serenata, is um, is uh, is uh, inspired by the children's book that I wrote. It, the, the children's book is the first um, bilingual Latinx children's book about a boy who loves a boy. Um, and um, and, uh, and the short film kind of makes it a more adult conversation around this question of Mexican serenading and uh, how important it is. And I'll just be brief. I think it's a healing journey because I, as a, as a former childhood singer, stopped singing as a way to challenge my father to be like, so I was so upset. Um, I was a good singer. Um, I loved singing, but I stopped singing as a way to say F you somehow in my own way to like the homophobia and to the patriarchy of those songs. <laughs> right? As a, someone who wanted to practice, I stopped singing. I was at Stanford with, there was a mariachi. I didn't join the mariachi, you know? <laughs> so this is my reclaiming of my voice um, uh, uh, through this, through reclaiming serenades as a queer tradition, as a tradition that queer people can participate in. Um, I don't know if I'm talking too much, but that's... No, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, it's it's beautiful, this uh, this journey, this healing journey, you know, and I, I, I can identify with, you know, both of you know some of my journey and, you know, and, and it has been, it has not been easy, uh, but it has been so important to be be around you know um and continue you know continue the good fight um 
because we are running close to the hour, triste. Um, words of wisdom, you know, words of wisdom to, um, you know, recent alums or students still at Stanford. Um, what would you have told your younger self, if anything? What words of advice uh, would have you shared to uh, Brenda or to Ernesto or to Chabela, Chabeli, uh, back in the day? Um, let's start with Brenda. Oh, <laughs> thank you so much. Um, somebody just put in the chat, thank you for whoever gave a such a sweet, they, with the, if I may share, the message was you're very brave. Um, it, the message went over, but it said that, and it, it's very, thank you so much. It reminds me again of like the importance of just being true in terms of whatever your journey is, you know, and sharing it and being open of, uh, when you can, when you're able to be open. Uh, so little Brenda, you know, Part of the story that I wrote in that book, uh, the Yo Tambien Stories of Healing and Hope, was speaking to uh, and acknowledging, and it's actually part of it. I just, the, the, the story memorialized what I had already experienced. And that is that I, at some point, I literally felt in part, you know, in my healing journey, I literally felt a presence of um, myself as a child, since in my case, my abuse happened when I was very little. Um, and and I, I, I became a mom to Brendita. So now she's somebody that, uh, that, I, that I do sing to, speak to, who accompanies me. And certainly having my own son and, and um, breastfeeding him, you know, there, there's something I just, you know, there, there is an actual healing moment where I literally, Imagine, you know, nobody was there. It was just me and Brendita, and I imagined myself breastfeeding her. And and there's a lot of um, magical healing that has come from that. I'm going to say, I, when I was a, a young person, I had no idea where my journey would end up. I mean, I have to tell you that I suffered from depression. I um, I it was very tough, you know, coming to terms with what happened and the secrets and um, very, uh, you know, painful things. And, uh, you know, I, I wasn't kind to myself at certain uh, points to my body or, you know, um, when I was in high school, I cut, you know, I, I went through thankfully a brief time when I, it was brief when I did that and they were all, uh, because that's what it does to you when you, when you, um, when somebody does break your spirit like that, you know, it's very, painful but you can you can definitely there's there's a there's a, I mean being alive I'm going to say you know I um and I've said this before is and this is not just because of the incest rape it's also all of us you know being part of the queer community statistically speaking we're all at risk you know all of us have had our own journey and have our own journey and as a population we're at higher risk of committing suicide of drug addiction of all these um of all these things so all I can say is love yourself forgive forgiveness has definitely been part of my healing journey you know forgiving myself forgiving others 
And, and like coming out, forgiveness is not a one-time thing. You continuously have to forgive because I get a new memory, a new thought or something. And then I still, you know, I have to go through the journey of forgiveness. Like coming out, it becomes easier, but it's a continuous thing. There is no one moment of forgiveness, just like there's no one moment of coming out. It's a continuous thing. And that's what I would remind myself if I could speak to, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21 year old me. Um, is that if we don't, you know, this is, it's this part of life. I've, I'm always, until the day that I pass from this earth, you know, I, all of these things, they're all going to be with me, but certainly at this point, I have a lot of love, um, for myself and for those around me. And, and it involves forgiveness as well. I guess, um, maybe to add something different than uh, I think, um, but my mind does linger with you, Brenda. So I, I could go down uh, and, and echo many things you're saying. I think I'll say something different to my younger self. It would be, um, um, there are, what I've learned now is that there are parts of my day that I'm doing a certain activity and it's what people call a state of flow. It's like time and space recedes. It's like, all I wanna be doing is that thing. It's not that I'm just good at it. It's like, I'm ready for the challenge of it. And, uh, you know, people call these states of flow and people often ask us to, um, you know, inventory that in your life and think you can construct a life more around these things. <laughs> you know, you don't have to just be, um, you know, you can, you can manufacture, you know, create a path for your life that has more of these life-giving experiences. And so I guess I would say, um, say that to the younger self that, there were moments where I was that I could see that I was denying states of flow, um, um, and you know that's trauma. And you know, I mean, trauma informed in the sense that you know, um, you know, you wanted to protect yourself, um, and so I would encourage my younger self to pursue, to learn more, to experiment more with a variety of things that might uh, give me uh, more life. <laughs> um, and I probably could have gotten, um, you know, I'm 45 now, I probably would have more quickly gone into the creative route um, if I had paid attention to that. And by, and by creative, I don't, don't just mean um, uh, professionalized, I mean that healing part. I would have gotten there faster. This is your journey, right? Like, <laughs> no, totally. Because, because yeah, I, I have thoughts like that too. Like, oh, if I had known this, you know, but it's bien, you know, this is it. This is this yeah. is where you couldn't have, perhaps you couldn't have done it earlier. It had to be, in order for it to become what it is now, you had to go through through what you went through. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I would just add as a way to be vulnerable, growing up in, with people who sometimes were overly critical, I learned to be overly critical, but to not say it. And so I think I felt in competition sometimes with people. I would tell my younger self to let go of that competition. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's I will fail. Clearly, it's something that I had to unlearn, you know, and that takes time. But with all these competitive schools, you know, uh, this is, you know, you're like getting the next scholarship, you know, and then you start to see people as competition. And yes, was fail. So what I would tell little Chabelita mm -hmm. is foundation is very important. <laughs> and spending uh investing in a wig is extremely important anyways 
because she was she was a little ragged when she was younger. Um, <laughs> but um, seriously, I think that um, you know I echo uh, the sentiments. You know that we, you know, um, not knowing the full extent of you know both of your backgrounds. Um, you know, we came into a place of privilege, uh, which was Stanford. Um, and with, you know, with a lot of, um, a lot of very beautiful gifts, um, but a lot of broken parts, you know? And so I think that um, this journey called life has just been so, um, so amazing, tough. Um, and amazing, um, I think for for everyone who, who who resembles, feels, looks like us, you know, and um, and, and and the beautiful thing, you know, is is that legacy that we're leaving behind, you know. Believe it or not, even this interview is memorializing us uh, in our journey, in in our struggle. Um, and our, um, and hopefully can motivate others to, to continue trudging, you know, and finding happiness, whatever that means to them, you know, um, or however that manifests to them. I had to be the bearer of bad news, pero Chabela is about to close this, this, um, this little function, this little interview. I love you, adore you, and respect you immensely. Um, and can't wait to be uh, sharing space uh, with you both soon. Any parting words, Ernesto or um, Brenda? I feel loved, and I love you too. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us and for creating this space and having this space. Thank you. Yeah, no, I really appreciate it. And yeah, I think, um, you know, what a nice place to, to get to together um, in a way that really honors our journeys. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Bueno, that is a wrap. Thank you everyone for joining us. Um, this has been a Champions Interview and I am Chabeli, sometimes Chabela. Uh, and our guests today were Ernesto Martinez and Brenda Chavez. Happy gracias. Adiós, gracias. <laughs>